All right, teaching others also, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. I believe this is our 25th session, and we haven't been making them long or tedious. Uh, we've not been exhausting it. But, however, <clears throat> I am impressed more and more every day as time goes on. I mean, we're here in the past the middle of 2023 and there was a time when I first got saved that everyone thought the year 2000 was the you know the mark and someone's like oh it's just such a long time coming but 23 years in God's mind isn't very long so when we think of these things we have to remind ourselves that it's almost a blink of an eye to the Lord it's a it's, if a thousand years is as a day, and the Lord gave us that by way of Simon Peter and Second Peter, chapter three, verse eight. If a day is as a thousand years, well, twenty-three, twenty-five, even fifty years is not much. And I said all that to say that there's a danger of people not living ready, and then there's a danger of people living as if they're serving out their time. Or trying to find out when it's going to happen and not being actually ready for it to happen. But thinking that because they're studying it, that makes them ready. Now I said all that to say that in Simon Peter's writings, when we come to chapter 5, he addresses in verse 1 the elders and he exhorts them. Okay? It's an exhortation. He said, the elders among you I exhort who am also an elder. Now, everything appears that it's primarily a spiritual thing, although there's some age involved. For example, in our beginning verse today, likewise you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Well, that is obviously, in an immediate context, an age thing. But it's not just age as in numerical or chronological age. It entails many things. I grew up in an environment where you were told to respect your elders. That didn't always go well with the old nature, but it was something that you you learned to believe in. And uh, in the environment I grew up in exposed to, working with primarily grown-ups all the time, even as an early teen, that you just it became a way you did things. One of the great things that's happened today in society, and I'm speaking here because I live in the United States America, but I've been in many places in the world, and uh, literally between here and the other side of the world, down under, it's the same thing, is youth are being taught to disrespect. So it says, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, in the context, it appears that it definitely has a spiritual context. So he says, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who also am an elder, witness of the suffering of Christ, partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God, which is among you. Verse 2. So there's definitely a connection to it. Now, to be honest with you, I, I marvel sometimes that people just sort of forget all the other verses that would line up to it being both combined. He says in 1 Timothy 3 about someone who might end up being a pastor, a leader, a preacher, a teacher. He said, let these also first be proof. Same thing that goes with being a deacon, a helping elder, 
a supporting elder in a church. I'm not afraid to talk about the King James Bible words in the context they're given. I'm not going to let something like the Latter-day Saints, uh, commonly called Mormons, I'm not going to let them and their use of the word elder and their name tags and all that, I'm not going to let that block out the truth that God's given us. So when he says, likewise, you younger, well, he says, likewise, so he's referring to something. So in verse 4, he said, When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So the chief shepherd is whom the elders, the under-shepherds we call them, it's whom they submit to. So he says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now here's the picture. The picture isn't that a younger one grabs half of that sentence and says, see, we're to be subject one to another as if the parents are to be subject to the child or the leaders to be subject to the ones he's leading, the flock. The direct context, and in every other place you find it, it's about saying, I am subject to my place in the body of Christ. I'm subject to the role I need to play in the body of Christ. If I'm not subject to that role, then I'm not subject to those around me. And if I'm subject to those around me, then I'm subject to God's chain of command and God's pattern and God's roles, R-O-L-E-S, for my life and for others' lives. He said, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. So, everything in the context says it's primarily a spiritual elder, and the spiritual elder isn't going to be a younger person. Now, they take young people all the time nowadays and put them in places, they elevate them. And the danger with that, he says, lest being lifted up with pride, 1 Timothy 3, fall into the condemnation of the devil. So he warns us in this context, for God resisteth the proud, giveth grace to the humble. So it appears it's a spiritual situation. Now, in our Bible, there's many, many things about pride. Obviously, we could take several messages and Talk about pride. I want to give the forced look real quick. Because in James, he said in chapter 4, verse 6, He giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So, the two are quotes of each other. One of the other, or the other of the other. <laughs> Either James is quoting Peter, or Peter's quoting James, or... There is another option. They're quoting what they've been taught. See? Many times, study your Bible and then, you know, look at commentaries and stuff, but be careful of not looking at the cross-references first. And don't let your personal predisposition, your personal, your personality, lead you into a corner of saying the Bible says something or teaches something. It's easy for it to happen. <clears throat> and James, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. In Simon Peter's writings, he says, God giveth, God resists the proud. He giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Now they're all connected. So God does resist the proud. We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 references that obviously have to do with Lucifer and his beginning situation 
obviously have to do with Lucifer and his beginning status in the universe under God. He resisted them. We live in a time right now where in many places, but here in the United States, for example, there's a blindness, I believe, that has happened to Christians and to those who consider themselves on the right side of center, in contrast to, say, the left side of center. They are back, backing and defending and promoting someone who is known for I mean, every evidence, even to his appearance, is of pride. The danger is that what's happened is because the other side of the line, of the aisle, as they say in politics, because the other side of the aisle has stooped to all kind of stuff and have gotten their way through thuggery, etc., that people have reacted to that instead of acting by Scripture, and they're willing to follow someone, promote someone, who's full of pride, they're willing to do that because it suits their cause. But this is a great danger. When the Lord gave the children of Israel a king called Saul, they wanted a king for the wrong reason and they wanted the wrong kind of king and God wanted to give them a man after his own heart if they'd waited that period of time because he was bringing David up and along. But instead, he gave them a people after their own heart, not God's own heart. And he was head and shoulders above the rest and stuff, but he led his entire life. Started off humble for just a little short period and led his life through pride. And they reaped the harvest of it, which was a sour, terrible harvest. Now, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. That is a truth all in itself. It is something that should be taught and preached and helped with. It's the attitude. The reason he says, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility is because if the leaders, men or women in the home and stuff, if they, have, if they are subject one to another, so they're subject to authority. They're subject to leadership. In so doing, that gives an example to the younger, and it doesn't set up a situation of inequality of power. One must have authority and influence in order to lead appropriately. You have to. It's just part of life. But he said to be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. Humility is not a sign of weakness. Humility is not putting yourself down. Humility has taken your right place before God and mankind. He said, God resists the proud, he giveth grace to the humble. Now there are multiple references, okay, to the application of this. But understand that it takes grace to live for God. It takes grace to live in this life. It takes grace to make sure you don't get bitter about anything. I'm going to... Direct you to Hebrews 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15, in the context, and, and I'm going to read it in the context, is chastening. Is God disciplining us? God uh, setting things in our path that knock the edges off of us, that deal with our 
our submission, that deal with our attitude. He said, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, in verse 7 of Hebrews 12. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. So God loves you enough to chasten you. Margin of this teaching Bible, I got God loves you, Mike, meaning he's going to chasten me. He's going to chastise me. But he says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. In other words, we should have if we didn't. And we gave them reverence because of the system God put in place. I wouldn't have thought to try to fight my dad about something or back talking stuff. Because the uh, cost was too high. <laughs> no, I was never abused that way. No, I was never... I didn't get near as much discipline as I could have gotten if I got it for everything. He said, Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So if we submitted to human authority, and we should have, listen, do not let all the rhetoric today where they're interviewing young people and they're surveying young people and why did you get out of church when you grew up and had the right? Well, my parents made me go... That is the biggest load of rubbish I've ever heard. You say, well, they went to a hard church. or dis-. Listen, that's about as silly as someone saying, why did you join the Marine Corps? I left. I joined the Marine Corps so I get out of the house and not have to be under authority. <laughs> I've heard people testify to that, that that's how they ended up in the Marine Corps or the Navy or the Army. I've heard it. You talk about jumping from the frying pan into the fire. So the, the point is that we must understand that God's system works and it doesn't matter what the current generation is doing or the reasons they give. You, you must not change what's right and what you're doing right because somebody has a bitterness. What do you, why would they have bitterness? Well, verse 10 of Hebrews 12, they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. And they did. Many of the things that I got disciplined for were not necessarily right. They were misinterpretations sometimes. They were just flat-out mistakes my dad made many times. Nevertheless, right? But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. So even if they did and they made their mistakes, so what? We make, we've made our own mistakes. You don't go from not leading and not disciplining to, well, you just choose for yourself and think that that's going to come out okay. Why, a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame, ladies, mothers. Little Jimmy, Johnny, Mikey are not going to make all the right choices, very few right choices without discipline. So verse 11, now no chasing for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. So it's not fun to be chastened, trained, corrected, whatever you want to call it. It's not always a blessing immediately for the present, it says. Watch. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised. Thereby. It's funny that phrase God put in his King James Bible. Exercise thereby. You feel like sometimes when I got disciplined, I felt like I'd been exercised. Not the other word for exorcism. <laughs> exercise. In other words, felt like I'd been through it. So he says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down. Your hands hang down when you're a little discouraged. And the feeble knees. You need support. 
Now watch. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So the chastening, the chastisement, God does it, then He heals us, and we're stronger. Verse 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently. Here we go. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. So if we fail of the grace of God, it means we didn't allow God's grace not just to save us, but to guide us, to direct us, to fill us, to lead our life. The rest of that verse, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now back in the context of 1 Peter 5 then, when he says, For God resists the proud, he giveth grace to the humble. God gives us the grace to be learned, to be corrected, later to correct others in the right spirit. And then it says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That due time might be eternity. Okay? Only God knows when it's safe for him to exalt you, to lift you up, to put you at a higher level. To put you, and, and by the way, the higher level isn't so you can have perks. The higher level isn't so you can have recognition. It's, it's actually an increase in responsibility to help and influence others. If you would think of that way, it would cause you to realize, let's take military. In reality, the perks of officership, of becoming higher and higher an officer, are supposed to be there to help the officer with fulfilling his responsibilities to those under him. Now we know what happens. As always happens, people consume it upon their lust, as your Bible says. Okay? But in its right and pure form, it's there <coughs> Excuse me, to enable <clears throat> the leader to fulfill his responsibility. Jesse Puller was a great example. He wouldn't take those perks and use them for himself. Some of them, he actually denied them, turned them down. Some of them he would take and distribute among his men. So, the picture is, and the sentence continues, verses 6 and 7 are a continued sentence. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So, the younger submit to the elder, we all are subject to each other in our roles, in our responsibilities, in our accountabilities. Okay? We take a humble view of things and we practice humility because God resisteth the proud and he giveth grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Now, when we do this humbling, submitting, subjecting, practicing humility. When we do this, it does create some care. Because you'll have some who are not doing it in leadership. You have some who are not doing that in society. So it will create inequality. It will create injustice. It will, it will create situations that are difficult to accept. There's a verse in Proverbs 16, if you want to turn to it and mark it, that has helped me a lot. I've done messages on it. Probably have some 
uh, on the internet on it. Proverbs 16, and it is the last verse of Proverbs 16. Now, there's some good verses in Proverbs 16 about uh, verse 3, Commit your works unto the Lord, thy thoughts shall be established, etc. Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 Short version of what that means is they would have a white and a black stone, Urim and Thummim. They would drop it into a pouch on the breastplate of the priest. And which stone got drawn... It was like all the stuff that all these years has been w- done with computers. Yes, no. I-O. Yes, no. Yes, no. And that's how they made many decisions. And so the picture is the lot is cast into the lap. The lapped up pouch. A pouch was made by just taking a piece of cloth, folding it, sewing it on the edges. It becomes a pouch. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So it's like our lot in life. So we're not a... God is not a passive spectator in what we do. Okay? So he says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The law is cast into the lap. Uh, For years and years, decades upon decades, I've come back to that verse many, many, many times in a year's time and said, Lord, I've cast my lot in with you. Here's what's happened. I'm going to leave it with you till eternity. And we have to practice discipline in that. When we don't practice that and remind ourselves, I've cast in my lot, it's up to the Lord to dispose of it, it's up to God. When we don't do that, we get distracted, we can get bitter, which is warned about as we looked at today in Hebrews 12, and we can get out of order with those around us and with the Lord. Now, others are going to be out of order. That happens. Sometimes we might be, but we cannot and must not let someone else be out of order keep us from staying in God's order. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. So when something is a care, whatever it is, and this is, listen, this is something you could preach and teach on several times a year. If you're a, a, if you have a class, your, your class should hear about this truth. Not necessarily from this text, but this truth several times a year. Because we need it. Casting. Leaving your hand going into God's hand. Leaving your care and going into God's care. Why? For He careth for you. Now we could teach on it, preach on it. We're not. This is just some expository teaching. But He cares for you. Now He transitions now into some activeness. Ready? Verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Why? Because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, sober. Sober is an attitude. It's not just not being drunk, but it's not being carried away with things. It's not being uneven in your uh, passions. It's, it's being uh, level-headed. It's being thinking clearly. It's considering the situations. Now, that doesn't mean you don't praise the Lord or cry or shout or whatever. But it's living soberly. Like a sober person in contrast to an intoxicated person. 
For example, don't let your successes or victories intoxicate you. If you're younger and God's been using you and stuff, be careful. I give young men the verse, you know, where he said, Let not him that girdeth on his harmeth boasteth himself as he that taketh it off, putteth it off. First Kings. Why why do do I give him that verse? Because in that context, the young fella thinks he's you know, he's had some victories, so he thinks he's just you know, he's everything. He thinks he's got it, you know, <laughs> got it all figured out. But he doesn't. And so what we want to do is remind ourselves. That's first Kings twenty eleven, if you're wondering. So he said, the old timer said, look, you're just getting started. Don't mess with us old veterans of these battles. As Christians, we need to make sure that we don't think so highly that we forget that. So we need to be sober about it. Now watch, be vigilant. And now, put an E on it, it's vigilante. How I am vigilant decides if I'm vigilant or vigilante. doesn't say to be a vigilante. It's so cool. God says... All these different statements, and if we will take them together, it tells us how we ought to be doing things. It wouldn't take anything at all for some of us, and some of us, including myself, to get stirred up about something. But we're not supposed to be ignorant of his devices, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And so because we're not ignorant of his devices, we don't want to walk into a booby trap. We don't walk into an ex-ambush, okay? He said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In the context, he's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about how the devil will use unforgiveness. Go back to Hebrews 12. Bitterness. So in our context, this thing is a, <coughs> a gold mine of help. They're sayings that we should memorize, as many of us have through the year. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, if you've got your King James Bible there, you need to walk, mark the word may. Mark the word may. And somewhere in there, just write Job. And when you, when you do that, by, by writing in there Job, you go back to Job chapter 1 and 2 and find out the devil had to get permission and parameters to deal with Job. He said that God had put a hedge about him. So the devil goes about seeking whom he may devour. Now, if we let down the hedge, we've helped him. Job didn't let down the hedge. In fact, God was bragging on Job. God had put Job as a, as a piece on the, on the board and made him the target and made him a, a challenge between God and Satan. So his friends messed up big time in their understanding of it. And I trust you won't be like Job's friends for someone who's going through it. But I'll say this. He didn't say antagonize the devil. Only a drunk would do that. That's why you be sober. You be vigilant. Why? He goes about as a roaring lion walketh about. As a roaring lion he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Stay on the right side of God. Uh, Make sure you, you... Keep the right attitude towards God and man. He may get that. But we should be sober and be vigilant. Verse 9, whom resists steadfast in the faith? Again, you ought to go check out Job a little bit. He resisted that in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplishing your brethren in the world. That was one of Job's points that he made. 
Job's point was, good comes and evil comes. I like what Brother Wood said one time, that that bus, they took it over, I think, over to Florida, out of Houston, and it was an older Greyhound bus, and they took a group over, and they sang, had a great meeting on the way back, transmission or something, you know, tore up. And one of the dear old saints said, you think this is the devil fighting us? And he said, ma'am, I think the transmission blew up. (laughs) And he wasn't being sarcastic. He was saying, these things happen. Now, yeah, you wish they wouldn't, but people get flat tires in the rain all the time. Young missionary couple, you know, just starting out deputation, they were acting like the devil's fighting them because they had a flat tire and it blew out and bent part of the fender. Well, okay, you can say that, but honestly, he's not trying to devour your tire. He's trying to devour your faith, whom resists steadfast in the faith. Now watch, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplishing your brethren that are in the world. Now the best I can tell from that verse, he's saying, you don't go looking for a fight. You live right for God. You're sober. You're vigilant. When it comes, resist it. But understand that in this world, in this life, everybody faces the same troubles. Everybody faces the same trials. Christians sometimes get themselves confused by thinking that some of the the normal earthly problems or the devil attacking them. He will attack your faith when that problem comes. But he personally might not have anything to do with that problem. What he's looking to do is attack your faith. If you had a piece of paper there, and you drew a triangle. Now life is more like a circle than a triangle, okay? But if you drew a triangle, and then you put a circle around it. But if you did, put a triangle. And you wrote on one side of it, spirit. On the other side, soul. On the other side, body. And then out from that word, okay, you wrote, beside body, you wrote Jesus. Beside spirit, you wrote the Father. Beside soul, you wrote the Holy Ghost. And then as you come back out from that, each side of that, the one that you've got body and Jesus, you got the devil. What is he attacking? Next word, faith. If you went on the other side of that triangle and you've got spirit and the Father, okay, you've got the world attacks it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all in the world, lust flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life, not of the Father, but is of the world. It's after your heart, your love. Then on that bottom one that says soul, okay, and says Holy Ghost, you put in there the flesh. What's it after? Your submission, your subjection. So in this case, when we're looking at Simon Peter, we're looking at the fact that the devil's trying to get your faith and he uses physical things primarily. Money, health, relationships, all that kind of stuff. When he came, the three temptations had to do with him against the Lord Jesus Christ. He attacks your faith. He wants to see if he can devour your faith. What will he use many times? The everyday things of life. See, he doesn't have to make those things happen Get this, he doesn't make them happen. He just uses them to say, hey, look at this. God forgot you, or God this. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. 
That's Ecclesiastes 2.14. Ecclesiastes is about life under the sun, life on earth, okay? He said, I have returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Now you say nothing just happens to the child of God, they're part of his plan. I get that. But listen, the unpredictable elements of life are always with us. And so-called luck often does beat skill. Now we don't believe in that. That's not where we put our faith. If you took the name Lucifer and shortened it, L-U-C-I, but you put a hard C in there, it'd be called lucky. Okay? So when you give credence to luck, you're giving credence to lucky to Lucifer. What he tries to do is he tries to use the elements of this life. They're going to be there. The same things are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And we have to remind ourselves of that. The same afflictions, they're going to be there. Listen, (laughs) it would have been so hard on Adam and Eve, having been innocent, then cast out. Okay? There are so many things. There's debt, there's disease, there's defamation, there's distress, there's divorce. Listen, there's so many things in this world that are there because of sin. And they come into our life, and it, it many times it's not just one person's sin, one for this or that. Sometimes it is for an individual, sometimes it is. But remember, he said, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished your brethren in the world. Will God use it? Yes. But you have to be sober and be vigilant and resist the devil. Whom resists steadfast how? In the faith. That's the part of that triangle. Your body, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? The devil, it's all about faith. Verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strength, and settle you. So there's a sense in which grace should be considered a sign of a mature, strong Christian. Much of it comes by suffering. I have a contention, I'm 68, okay, so I'm not 75 or 80 yet. Probably won't make it that long. (laughs) 70's the number, amen, going home to heaven by rapture or whatever. But, I know so many people my age, around this age, 68, 70, 72, whatever, 75, that today are bad examples of the grace of God. And society has put pressure on them to be that way, to be self-centered. You talk to them, all they want to talk about is their meds, and they're this, and they're this, and they're that. Society's done that. You have, you have, you know, AARP wants you to be totally obsessed with your life in retirement. When I grew up spiritually, those older people, they were the ones with the most grace, and the most strength, and the most peace. And that's how it needs to be. And if, if you're in your 60s and 70s, that's how it ought to be with you. And your goal in your 50s ought to be, you know, Lord, I want to grow in grace and learn about you. Because grace is a sign of a grown-up Christian. Well, <clears throat> he closed out this book, this letter, 
To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who's that? Jesus Christ. He said that uh, called us on eternal glory by Christ Jesus. That dominion, the Lordship, He's our ruler. Uh, Christ on the throne of our life. See, if we, if we remind ourselves constantly that glory and dominion forever and ever be His, we can subject ourselves one to another horizontally when we're subjected and worshiping vertically. Verse 12, By Sylvanus, a, br- a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testify that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Now this is important. Uh, someone has tried to point out that maybe Sylvanus is Silas, you know, over in Second Thessalonians. Uh, and maybe they were doubting. He confirms it. He says, as I suppose, a faithful brother knew, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting, testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. You know what's strange? They, they do all these new Bibles and stuff. Uh, in verse 13, he says, The church that is at Babylon elected together with you, saluted you, and so doth Marcus, my son. The living Bible changes Babylon to Rome. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> you say, who's Marcus? It could be John Mark. Uh, it could be Peter's literal son. I don't know. I don't know that it matters when you look at it. Verse 14, greet you one another with a kiss of charity. Okay. Uh, Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is an easy one. The easy thing is that it's a greeting, a friendship. The The right hand handshake came about in the days when, and primarily people are right handed, that when you're holding your right hand out and someone else holding it out and you grab it, you don't have your hand on your weapon, whether it be a sword or a knife. We know that that can be used as deception. The fellow had that knife on his left, on his right thigh, reached with his left hand, and bam, got the guy and killed him in the Old Testament. The picture is, and it's peculiar to Paul's writings, and it was normal for a Jew, normal in many cultures. It's not a kiss on lips, a kiss on the cheek. I've been saved about, uh, man, maybe six months, a year. And a fella <clears throat> where my folks had gotten saved in Miami was an evangelist, and he took me under his wing. I knew God had called me a preacher. didn't know what it was about. I honestly didn't. I couldn't have described it to you. I wasn't raised, reared up in church or nothing. He said, come with me. I'm going to Tampa to hold some meetings in some jails. And we went. And on a Sunday, we were at a brethren church. And he said, you're going to speak to the young people. I'm going to speak to the main auditorium. And then we'll go out to lunch. And we were going to speak. He's going to speak that night. And then we're going to do some jail work the next couple days. So I go and I speak the best I could to those young people, those poor young people. You know, I didn't know anything. And uh, maybe it was better because it didn't. I don't know. But I came out of there and waited for him. Their church dismissed. And we went on the porch. He said, come stand by me. And the people are filing out. And the elders of the church, like pastors are, there was two of those older fellows. They all had long beards. This is, this is back in 1974. Okay. And uh, they're shaking hands. But as each of those men got there, not the women, the men, they'd give them a kiss on the cheek. Now, you got to understand, I'm right out of the world. 1974, I'm 19 years old. I don't know any of this. I don't even know this verse is in the Bible or these verses are in the Bible. 
because they are. They're in Romans 16 and 2 Corinthians 13. So they get to that. They get to him. And I see him coming. And I turned to him. I said, can I borrow the keys? I haven't been feeling well. And he just started laughing. He goes, yeah, go ahead. And he handed me the keys. And I went to his car. Well, the reception got done. And everything it was time to go grab something to eat. And we got something simple. And went back to this little room we're staying in. Just like literally just one little room and a couple of single beds. And it was Sunday afternoon. It was hot. We were going to just rest a little bit before we go back to church. We're laying there and he starts laughing out loud. <laughs> and Because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually befuddled. I, I'm like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? He said, you should have seen your face. I said, what are y'all doing? He said, open your Bible. And I opened my Bible and he took me to those verses. I said, okay, well, that's fine that it's written that way, but you're going to have to interpret it. And he explained to me about a greeting and stuff. And he said, they happen to take it literal. And he said, they're not doing anything sensual. You notice it wasn't the women and, and men mixed together doing it. And it wasn't that kind of stuff. Romans sixteen sixteen says, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. You ought to mark it down. Romans 16, 16. Because the, I, the whole thing, once he said salute and started explaining it, then I got it. I was like, okay. Uh, you know, way back when, when guys would like slap their hands together and give each other five, they'd say, give me, give me that, you know, kiss my hand. And they weren't talking about kissing the back of his hand. They were talking about rubbing your hands together, smacking them on the go. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with an holy kiss. And that was a real good thing for me because I realized what it meant. When I, many years, decades later, when I was in Romania, a lot of those churches still greeted that way. The Romanians greeted one another that way. And having had that behind me and stuff, but here's the point, ready? Greet one another with a kiss of charity and Simon Peter's a kiss of charity you see it's the idea it's an expression of love if ever there was a time when there needs to be a genuine holy expression of love in believers it's now we have a completed book we have thousands of hours you know and time of people teaching us the Bible and and everything, and we should know the Lord like, and there ought to be a genuine love. It can be a handshake, it could be a hug, it can be a pat on the arm, it can be all kind of things. I don't go around giving my, my brethren a, a kiss on the cheek like they do in other countries. But the point is what it represents. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. If you know that you've got to have that charity spirit it helps you keep right with God. He says, Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I will close with this. Close this book out saying, Understand that there is no real peace. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is no peace without the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's essential for us to realize that that is a thing that has to be maintained. You, <coughs> you can have your destination totally sealed. And you're saved, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And He will work on you and stuff. 
But if you don't cultivate that, and if you don't cultivate it in your home, in your friendships, in your life, in your congregations, then it's going to ease away and go away. And all you'll have is an outward thing, a facade. And that facade will be a front. A facade just means a front. Like in these movies and all these stuff, they build fronts on these buildings. And you'll have a street, you know, the old Western stuff, a street of stuff. And behind those facades are, are there's some, some one or two or three floors of stuff, but it's not covered in. It's just for them to get up and down and stick their heads out the windows. And it's a facade. It's a front. And I, I know a lot of people, they don't set out to have a front, a facade. It becomes that if the charity and the faith and the love are not maintained. So that the building is whole. Father, pray take these things. We've done this book of the Bible. Use it, I pray, for your glory. Please count it, I ask thee. In Jesus' name, amen.